0: Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to the fifth episode of Post Woke, the New York City based podcast where we learn intellectual self defense. This week, I'm flying solo again because as I promised in episode number three, I am delivering the COVID-19 vaccine episode. And before we get to that, I want to clarify that this is not about deeper issues like transhumanism, the World Economic Forum, the Great Reset, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, or the New World Order. Each of those will eventually be discussed in this uh, podcast. But today, For this episode, the goal is to provide readily available context in the name of breaking the current vaccine trance. Relentless conditioning has created a very compliant population, one hesitant to speak their minds for fear of being ostracized. So therefore, episode five is designed to share the kind of information that is getting people banned on social media or shunned by their friends or family, but being that your literal health and life and the health and life of everyone you know is at stake, I'd say it's worthwhile to entertain and explore more than one perspective. So the general approach is that I'm going to break it into sort of a Q&A, I've asked myself 10 questions and answered them. I urge you to listen carefully, check my facts, share this podcast far and wide, and if you have questions or evidence-based counterpoints, my email address is in the show notes. And speaking of emails, before we get to the vaccine Q&A, I'd like to share with you one of the responses I got to my questions about nonconformists in episode number three. The email came from Elliot Crown, somebody I met back in my Occupy Wall Street days. Elliot is a master puppet maker. He does guerrilla theater. He creates unforgettable eye-catching characters. And really, if you're at an event where Elliot is at the event, you'll know that Elliot's at the event. He you do not miss him. He he will he will be the person you remember most from that event. So, um, before he got to the part where he mentioned, he describes why he sees himself as a nonconformist. He opened with um, a little commentary that I s- wanted to share anyway, because I can relate to it because I've been to m- at least a dozen anti-mandate rallies here in New York City. So here's what Elliot said: What has fascinated me is the coming together of a new activist community. First-timers, many of which are re- wh- whom are religious and conservative. I'm part of this community and I'm astonished how many are healers, astrologers, yoga teachers, therapists, self described light workers, etc., who are part of the resistance. I've had encounters with complete strangers who look meaningfully in my eyes and say, We're here for a reason now. And I appreciated him writing that because, as I said, I've been to these events and I must say there is something palpably different than my old-time activist days. But to get to the nonconformist stuff, um, I'm going to read from more from Elliot's email as he explains why he sees himself as a nonconformist and what his work accomplishes. So this is him speaking now. I keep up to date and I battle the woke and irrelevant former left. This year, I've cranked out several anti-mandate, anti-lockdown puppet performances, including my pissed off Uncle Sam character. Seven of these performances have been published in the mainstream press as photos, and four have been published globally. The biggest show I've ever done was a 30-person New York City Halloween parade performance in masks with five crazed doctors and nurses wielding huge functional syringes. We got fair coverage in the mainstream press. Yahoo News, which has more reach than ABC, NBC, and The Washington Post, ran a clip of one of my nurses jabbing people at the parade, chanting, money, 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 and boosters for the rest of your life with a maniacal laugh. They didn't call us conspiracy theorists or anti-vaxxers. MSN ran it too. Someone I know suggested that this is a this was a first from mainstream coverage and may indicate a turning point. On November 1st, the day after the parade, the Guardian ran a pick a photo of us as a global best photo of the day. The Guardian let us stand out from their global Halloween photos of the day before, October 31st. A kindness, I believe, to highlight our message. 1010 Wins New York Radio chose us as one of the best costumes of the parade, which we were definitely not. I believe we made a statement that the editors wanted people to see. I've come to the conclusion that journalists study truth and objectivity in college and want to report accurately, but when they take a job in corporate media, they know what they cannot say if they want a career. Were you to get them all in a room and off the record, journalists and editors would, I believe, overwhelmingly want to tell the truth, and that is why I get so much press. They can freely publish art without risk because, hey, it's just art and open to interpretation. I call this my artistic loophole. Anyway, I'm a good visual storyteller and I have an evolved mes- method of snaring the press. As a decent propagandist, I must take off my hat to the cabal behind the great reset. These guys are good. Will the court shut them down? Will the working class shut them down? Will overreach do them in? I don't know, but I remain hopeful amidst the terror in a test tube. So let me say thank you to Elliot for that excellent email and for all the incredible work he's done and continues to do. And I want to say to you, if you want to tell the audience how and why you're a nonconformist, please find my email in the show notes um, and let me know. And I am 100% open to short audio clips, and I can weave them into future episodes. I'm talking 15, 30 seconds answering this question. And since Elliot mentioned Terra in a test tube. We will get to the vaccine episode right after this short break. Hey, free thinkers, Mickey Z here. I just want to use this short break to urge you to visit my Substack, MickeyZ.Substack.com. That's where you can subscribe to Post Folk. As a free subscriber, you will get an email every time I release a podcast or article that's public. But if you choose to become a paid subscriber, which would be incredibly appreciated, you have all of those posts plus access to special premium content. You'll be able to comment on all of my posts and you will know that you are truly helping this project take off. So I would really, really appreciate it if you would consider that. Um, If you cannot afford a paid subscription, please, by all means, sign up for the free subscription, enjoy the content, share the links, let people know, and get the word out there. Let people see and hear for themselves that we are creating an open-minded community of questioners who are seeking intellectual self-defense. So I thank you in advance for your support, and let's get back to the COVID-19 vaccine episode. We're back, and let's get right to it with question number one. Who was in charge of the Operation Warp Speed COVID-19 vaccine effort in 2020? The chief advisor of the project was named Monsef Slaoui, and here are a few things to consider about Dr. Slaoui. Up until his appointment, he was a board member of Moderna. Yes, one of the pharmaceutical corporations given taxpayer money to market a COVID vaccine, even though it had never before brought a product to the market. Slaoui divested his shares in Moderna stock at a potential personal gain of $10 million. The share value of Moderna stock increased by $3 million in one day when the company announced an advance in vaccine clinical research. In May 2020, Slowy promised to donate any excess Moderna stock earnings to quote-unquote cancer research. As of this podcast, I can find no evidence that he has done so, but let's agree that cancer research is just a euphemism for shifting the money to a different pharmaceutical corporation. Slowy also owns stock in another of the funded COVID vaccine companies, GlaxoSmithKline. He says this stock represented his retirement after 29 years at the company, and if he had been asked to sell it, he would not have taken the federal position. Subsequently, Slowey was not asked to sell the GlaxoSmithKline stock and therefore accepted the powerful appointment. As chief advisor of Operation Warp Speed, Dr. Slowe was not a federal employee and was instead working under a $1 contract that exempted him from federal rules that would require him to list his outside positions, stock holdings, and other potential conflicts. Two watchdog groups, Public Citizen and Lower Drug Prices Now, Explained that Slawi's $1 contract appeared to be designed primarily to allow Slawi to maintain an extensive web of conflicting financial interests without any need to divest of, recuse from, or disclose those conflicting interests. And this provides Slawi with the opportunity to enrich himself, his colleagues, and his employers. Now before anyone can twist themselves into a pretzel to declare that the information I just provided is an isolated example, please allow me to introduce some uh, big picture numbers. The CDC, Centers for Disease Control, owns 57 vaccine patents it spends roughly 4.9 billion of its annual 12 billion dollar budget buying and distributing vaccines the national institutes of health the nih owns hundreds of vaccine patents and it profits from the sale of products it is supposedly regulating Government officials, including Anthony Fauci, regularly receive royalty payments of up to $150,000 per product that they develop and then push through the approval process. The Food and Drug Administration, FDA, receives 45% of its budget from the pharmaceutical industry in the form of user fees. Question number two with all this money regularly changing hands, is there any history of problems with vaccines? So before I get to the specifics, I just wanna say out loud, it feels virtually impossible to imagine that anyone on the planet who has access to a search engine has not looked this question up before, especially before they said yes to the jab. What in the history of corporate power has ever inspired such blind trust? Anyway, here are a few examples to answer the question. In 1998 and 99, the roto virus vaccine was found to increase the risk of a condition in infants that causes one segment of intestine to telescope into another segment and create an intestinal blockage the rotavirus vaccine had to be recalled in 1976 a swine flu vaccine made it to the market after more than 40 million people had been vaccinated it was discovered that the vaccine increased the risk of recipients developing Guillain-Barre syndrome. It was pulled from the market. Going back a little further, there is the disastrous case of the polio vaccine in 1955. In April of that year, over 200,000 U.S. children received the vaccine not knowing that it was defective in a potentially lethal way. Due to a rush in distributing the serum, Sound familiar? The process of inactivating the live polio virus in the vaccine had failed. Translation, they were injecting live polio virus directly into children. Later investigation found that the flawed vaccine caused at least 40,000 cases of polio, left at least 250 children with varying degrees of paralysis, and at least 10 of those children died. Again, these are are the only numbers the vaccine makers will own up to. For one more example, this one outside the U.S., there was the 1948 Kyoto disaster in Japan. After 606 children received diphtheria immunization, 68 of them died due to the improper manufacture of the toxoid, a toxin that was supposed to be rendered harmless in order to elicit an immune response. Question three, how do standard vaccines work and what are the risks? According to the World Health Organization, vaccines contained weakened or inactive parts of a particular organism, AKA an antigen, that triggers an immune response within the body. Vaccines do not prevent infection, but may reduce symptoms. They often fail for several reasons. One such common reason, particularly relevant when discussing COVID-19, is antibody-dependent enhancement, or ADE. ADE occurs when the antibodies generated during an immune response recognize and bind to a pathogen, but they are unable to prevent infection. For example, there was the case of respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, which causes pneumonia in children. A traditional vaccine was made, but children who were given the vaccine were found to be more likely to develop or die from pneumonia after infection with RSV. A a similar scenario played out in the early 2010s with a Bill Gates-funded vaccine for dengue fever. When children who had never been exposed to the virus got the vaccine, they were suddenly more likely to die from dengue fever than those who had never been vaccinated. ADE is one of the many, many reasons why vaccines for respiratory viruses, like COVID, are rarely successful and that all vaccines must be created and tested over extended periods of time, not warp speed. Because remember, all coronaviruses are prone to mutation. The COVID vaccines only target a single spike protein of the COVID virus. This is called selective pressure. A common example of a negative result from selective pressure is the widespread resistance to antibiotics. As for COVID, ADE can help explain how the emergence of more contagious variants is more likely due to the vaccines not the unvaccinated. Because when you have antibodies against just one of the viral proteins, as the COVID vaccines do, the virus only needs to mutate that one protein in order to evade your immune system. But if you have natural immunity, your, antibi- your antibodies will recognize all parts of the virus. So even if the spike protein has mutated, your body will still recognize other parts of the virus and mount an attack against those. Question number four. Are the COVID-19 vaccines actually even vaccines? The answer is no. They are genetically engineered mRNA particles wrapped in glycosylated nanolipids. The COVID vaccines, and I'll continue to use that word for simplicity's sake, the COVID vaccines are designed as a workaround of your DNA. You have DNA in every cell, delivering instructions to your body via mRNA. The M stands for messenger. The genetically engineered version of mRNA bypasses your DNA by punching a hole in your cells. This allows it to give your cells new instructions, in this case, to manufacture parts of the COVID virus, which are spike proteins. Now, some of you may recognize the mRNA behaves very much like a computer virus. Moderna even markets their vaccine as as an operating system, AKA the software of life. This is a direct quote from the Moderna website. Recognizing the broad potential of mRNA science, we set out to create an mRNA technology platform that functions very much like an operating system on a computer. It is designed so that it can plug and play interchangeably with different programs. In our case, the program or app is our mRNA drug, the unique mRNA sequence that codes for a protein. So yeah, it's not a vaccine. Never before has an approach like this been used on humans. Again, this is the very definition of an experimental medication. It is a novel form of genetic therapy of which some of the ingredients do not even have to be divulged because the pharmaceutical companies claim those ingredients to be proprietary. Question five, do the COVID-19 shots work? Well, these apps, have not been shown to prevent you from catching and or spreading SARS-CoV-2. And if they work for some people, they might very temporarily reduce your odds of getting a severe case. That makes them far more like a treatment than inoculation. From daily news reports to peer-reviewed research to anecdotal evidence, there is little to say that the jabs are protecting the vaccinated in any way related to the early promises. Currently, the FDA does not know if any of the COVID vaccines offer sustained efficacy for more than two months, any benefits for those who have tested positive, prevention of transmission, or reduction of deaths. Which leads me right into question six is, but didn't the FDA approve it? Don't put too much credence in the stamp of FDA approval. On average, the Food and Drug Administration pulls 4,500 of their once approved medicines and devices from the shelves every single year. Approval never means safe or effective. Question seven, are the COVID vaccines safe? It's highly unlikely that they are. The COVID shots are brand new technologies being tested on a global population of billions. There are no long-term results yet because long-term results require long-term to happen. In the rush to get these gene therapies out, corners were cut. For example, they were not tested to discern any of the following. Their impact on the brain, kidneys, heart, or lungs. Reactions and contraindications with other drugs and toxicity. Also, the following toxicity tests were not done. One, toxicokinetic, which is a test that it's an assessment of systemic exposure. Genotoxicity, possible damage to our DNA. Carcinogenicity, ability or tendency to produce cancers. In addition, no studies on pregnant women or prenatal, postnatal impacts were performed. And no one yet knows if and how the vaccines will affect future pregnancy if either parent or both has had the shot. This demonstrates why the average vaccine had previously taken about 7 to 10 years to go from collecting viral samples to licensing a drug. Until now, the fastest vaccine ever approved and considered successful was for the mumps. That took four years, 1963 to 1967, and it didn't use novel nanotechnology. Thus, it should be no surprise to see a brand new study being published in Arteriosclerosis, Thrombosis, and Vascular Biology, which is a peer-reviewed medical journal published on behalf of the American American Heart Association. This study says, "We conclude that the mRNA vaccines dramatically increase inflammation on the endothelium and T-cell infiltration of cardiac muscle and may account for the observations of increased thrombosis, cardiomyopathy and other vascular events following the vaccination." Close quote. This is why we are hearing so many stories about heart issues, heart attacks, etc. Also, a preprint study in the British Medical Journal found that the risk of 12 to 15-year-old healthy boys experiencing cardiac adverse events such as myocarditis after their second dose of the Pfizer vaccine is around four times the adolescent's risk of being admitted to the hospital as a result of infection with SARS-CoV-2. However, Big Pharma is pushing back. They're criticizing that last study for mining data from an inappropriate source to deliver an anti-vaccine message. What is this inappropriate source they speak of? It is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, commonly known as VAERS. It is brimming with reports of side effects. FYI, VAERS is the primary government mechanism for documenting adverse vaccine reactions in the U.S. Check the show notes and I offer the direct link. Now, get ready for some numbers. As of November 12th, 2021, on VAERS, there have been reports of 99,414 people ending up in the emergency rooms after getting the COVID vaccine. There were also 94,274 hospitalized. There were 139,951 visits to doctor's offices. There were 21,088 life-threatening reactions, 30,010 permanent disabilities, 18,853 deaths. Now, whenever I share such numbers, people jump to say that the VARES the reports are only Reports. This is technically true, but I ask you to consider the following. The actual number of adverse events is most likely quite significantly higher because VAERS is a passive surveillance system that relies on the willingness of individuals and professionals to submit reports voluntarily. Currently, very few medical professionals are brave enough to report such side effects because they fear for their reputation or possibly their job. Meanwhile, those who have experienced serious side effects after being jabbed are being told that the shot had nothing to do with it, and they're certainly not being guided to report anything to VERS. Now, if you're thinking that there is a flood of people knowingly filing false VAERS reports, keep in mind that to do so is a violation of federal law punishable by fine and imprisonment. Now, in 2010, Dr. Anthony Fauci was warned that VAERS was catching fewer than 1% of vaccine injuries, but he refused to fix the reporting system. He also ignored a report from the Agency for Healthcare Research Quality that found vaccines were causing serious injuries in one of every 40 recipients. Instead of working to improve these crucial reporting systems, Fauci teamed with Bill Gates and Big Tech to censor criticism of vaccines or mandates and to silence any reports of vaccine injuries. In addition, the CDC discourages autopsies on deaths reported to VARES. By seeking total compliance of the U.S. population in terms of the COVID vaccines, Dr. Fauci Big Pharma and the White House are essentially removing any control group. This would hide both adverse events and vaccine ineffectiveness. Keep this in mind as they now come for your babies and toddlers. We'll be back with more of the COVID-19 vaccine episode after this short break. Hey, I just want to take a short break to let you know that I'm already working on the next episode of Post Woke. Um, In that episode, I will touch briefly on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and use it as a launching pad for a deeper discussion on gun control and the entire debate around guns. And I will also welcome back in that episode my uncle Butch, who you met in episode one, and we will chat a bit. And he will help me tell a story, my story of the week, because he was directly involved in it. So on that note, let's get back to the vaccine Q&A. Question eight, are the pharmaceutical companies liable for any of this? Well, thanks to the PrEP Act, now that's, let me get this correct here. It is the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act Declaration. Thanks to the PREP Act, the pharmaceutical companies who made the experimental shots have been granted full immunity from liability. You can't sue them, you can't sue the politicians coercing you into the shots, and you certainly can't sue any of the jab-happy celebrities urging you to comply. If no one in charge will take responsibility for these products, why should we trust them? Fact. The only guaranteed immunity related to these vaccines is corporate immunity from lawsuits. Speaking of lawsuits, do yourself a favor and type Pfizer or Johnson and Johnson into your search engine and add the word scandal. This will give you a small idea of who you are trusting. As for Moderna, again, the COVID jab is the first product that, that company has ever brought to the market and they're testing it on you and your children. Question nine, but isn't it risky to not get jabbed? Didn't I hear that there is a pandemic of the unvaccinated happening? Yeah, you probably heard that because on July 16th, 2021, there was a White House press briefing in which CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky claimed that over 97% of people being admitted to hospitals with COVID at that point were unvaccinated, and she called it a pandemic of the unvaccinated. So if you are as big a science fan as you claim to be on social media, you might want to know how they arrived at this title. It turns out that the CDC included hospitalization and mortality data from January 2021 to June 2021. And they didn't include anything related to the Delta variant, which by June 2021 was the most prevalent strain. The problem is that from January to June of 2021, the vast majority of the U.S. population was unvaccinated. By January 1st, only 0.5% of the U.S. population had received a COVID shot by mid-April, at number went up to 31%. As of June, it was 48.7, meaning that that's how many people were fully vaccinated. Now, keep in mind that you're not considered fully vaccinated until two weeks after your second dose in the case of Pfizer or Moderna. And the second dose is given six weeks after your first shot. This is according to the CDC. So, If you received an initial dose in June, you wouldn't have been fully vaccinated until after Walensky made her proclamation. So now when the CDC claims that we're in a pandemic of the unvaccinated, it's because they used statistics from a time period when the U.S. as a whole was largely unvaccinated. Translation, the only new variant actually targeting the unvaccinated is corporate propaganda. Which brings us to the 10th and final question, when and how will the truth about COVID vaccines come out? Well, for starters, consider that the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, asked a federal judge on November 15th, 2021, to give it until the year 2076, to fully release the documents in its possession tied to the approval of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. This request was made in a filing as part of a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit by a medical transparency group. In other words, if we wait for the powers that shouldn't be to do the right thing, we will be waiting forever. If we do not fight back right now, we're looking at a future of endless boosters and medical interventions, all of which will be monitored digitally by malevolent actors. Therefore, it is the duty of each and every one of us to educate ourselves and others and say no to these vaccines, mandates, all medical tyranny, and all tyranny in general. So what can you do for starters? Well, if you've already gotten the jab, start refusing all the boosters now. If you have avoided the vaccine this this long, stay strong. You're on the right path. And please, please, please do not let your children get this vaccine. Remember, this all ends when we stop complying. And I will close with a special request to all those who still genuflect before the mRNA jab. I implore you to stop claiming across social media and beyond that despite lining up for an untested genetic therapy being marketed by corporations with lengthy criminal records, you somehow still have a healthy distrust of authority. On that note, we're going to take one more break and I will be back with my story of the week. This is already episode five of the Post-Woke podcast, and I am very happy with the progress we've made, with the amount of feedback I've gotten, subscribers, etc. but I wanna put out the call that, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, I'm open to hearing from you about being a nonconformist, but I'm open to hearing from you in general. You can go to the show notes and find my email address. If you know me personally, please reach out. If it, You're a friend of mine on Facebook, you can message me there, but I'd like to know what you think, um, what you'd like to see, and so on, because I want this to be as interactive as I can make it, and I'm going to work towards that as we go along here. And I truly mean it when I say that I want to create a community of questioners and people striving to perfect the art of intellectual self-defense. So again, thank you for your support and your listenership, and I very much hope to hear from you very soon soon this week's story I feel dovetails nicely with the general theme of questioning medicine now I recently wrote about this story in an article I don't know how recent it was somewhere in the past couple of months so since I'm reaching a lot more people and new people through the podcast, I'd like to retell the story, and I hope that those who did read the article a couple of months ago will enjoy it even more because it's being told as opposed to written. So, once upon a time, I had a pediatrician who made house calls, complete with a little black bag. Dr. Harris practically became part of the family after my older sister was born. This was an age when doctors really got to know their patients. They also weren't in a hurry to prescribe medications or suggest surgeries. Sometimes they'd even go out on a limb and make moves that would be unimaginable today. Here's a story about one of those moments. After being told she'd never have a second child, my mother was bedridden for much of her pregnancy with me. But there I was, nine months later, a happy and healthy baby already proving that the medical establishment was full of shit. However, what no one but Dr. Harris knew was that I was born with what they used to call a heart murmur. Today, it's mitral valve prolapse or MVP, typically not a condition that warrants any attention at all. Back then, however, a murmur could, could have caused my parents to baby me even more than they already did. Dr. Harris sagely recognized this likelihood and did something incredible. He didn't tell anyone. He worried that if he reported the condition, my parents would be overprotective and prevent me from being an active boy. He simply monitored my heart during every visit to be on the safe side. Translation, if not for Dr. Harris, I never would have become an athlete, which helped me become popular and confident. I also wouldn't have gotten into martial arts and fitness and all the other activities that have enriched my life and kept me youthful. Who knows what I'd look and feel like today if not for him? I owe that man big time. To cover his tracks, Dr. Harris had a long-term plan. When my, parent, when my parents eventually decided to stop bringing me to a pediatrician because I had aged out, he would contact my new doctor to explain the situation. At that point, the new guy would, could keep monitoring the MVP. However, my parents brought me to their doctor without telling Dr. Harris beforehand. During my first checkup, the new guy heard the telltale click. Confused, he explained what it meant to my parents, saying that most people are born with a heart murmur. He couldn't understand how Dr. Harris could have possibly missed it. This caused my mother to panic. She called Dr. Harris and he promptly confessed. What happened next may also be impossible today. My parents were okay with it. My mother admitted that Dr. Harris saved me from being forbidden to play sports and hang out with all my hooligan buddies, The new doctor ran me through a battery of tests to play it safe, he said. I remember him having the gall to ask me if I could do a push-up. With my parents in the room, a very insulted 12-year-old me hopped off the doctor's plinth and onto the floor. He stopped me at 20, but I did another 10 to make sure Mr. Expert got the full message. As the years passed, I literally forgot I had MVP until a new doctor of mine heard the click and tried to lay down a restriction. When I went for dental work, he said, I needed to be medicated before and after the procedure. It's called antibiotic, antibiotic prophylaxis. And here's the quote unquote logic. If my gums would bleed, I would swallow some of the blood and then there would be a slight chance it could cause an infection in my heart, AKA endocarditis because of the MVP. By that time, my mother had also been diagnosed with MVP. I likely inherited from her and was also doing antibiotic prophylaxis for her dental visits. She knew how I felt about the medical industry and begged me to comply, too. Being a good Catholic son, I did once. They had you take about eight antibiotic pills before treatment and then another four a few hours later. I don't know if any of you has ever taken that many antibiotics in a six-hour time period, but it makes you feel high, and then it makes you feel like shit, not to mention there's all the damage the drugs can do to your, to your intestinal flora. Still, the fear of endocarditis being impo- was being imposed upon me, and just look around now if you want to confirm what medical fear programming looks and feels like. I asked my dentist why I needed to take these meds when I was fully healthy and never displayed any heart-related symptoms. He just chalked it up to protocol. Then I asked him why it was okay for my gums to bleed each night when I flossed. He did not have an answer. He just made a joke about me being the only patient to ever question this protocol. This being the pre-internet days, I found some books at the library. In no time, I learned it was just a legal thing. Dentists and doctors were covering their asses when in reality, there was no need for antibiotic prophylaxis. If anything, as I surmised, the potential negative impacts far outweighed any benefits. I photocopied some pages from the, a book and brought them to my dentist. He took one glance and said, I know, but I have to follow the rules. It's required that I prescribe you the pills and ask you if you took them. We stared at each other for about 10 seconds, and I think we both knew exactly what would happen next. From then on, every time I'd come in for a cleaning, he'd ask, did you medicate? I would nod yes, and everything moved forward. In addition, I'd I'd still tell my mom that I was taking the pills. I didn't like lying to her, but I did so for her own protection. It's a little trick I learned from Dr. Harris. That does it for post-woke episode number five. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, keep your guard up.